Hello, I'm Peter Schechter, and on behalf of Mooney Jensen and I, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Today we're getting wonky, but this is important stuff. We're going to talk about the U.S. retreat from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, between the United States and Russia. To try to understand the causes and potential outcomes of this decision, we're going to be joined later by Jeffrey Lewis, the world-renowned expert, professor, and one of the most authoritative global voices on nonproliferation. And he's also a fellow podcaster on this subject. So, Peter, looking back, Russia has repeatedly violated the 1987 agreement, stipulating that neither nation would deploy land-based missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. So it was only the land-based missiles that were covered by the treaty. And then consecutive U.S. administrations and European partners have really preferred to tolerate Russian hanky-panky rather than have them operate outside of the constraints of the treaty. So it was better to have Russia inside, even if it was not complying, than have it leave altogether. That has been kind of the conventional wisdom. Until President Trump came along, and as he's done with other traditional foreign policy structures, he pulled the plug on the INF treaty. And it's very hard to find a strategic reason to do so. He himself referred to Russian violations as a reason, but those aren't new. It's also well known that the National Security Advisor John Bolton has been a critic of the treaty and proponent of abandoning the accord. So whatever the reason, neither it's Bolton or Trump himself, with Russia out of the treaty as well, we're back to the nuclear arms race of the Cold War era, and that is hugely concerning. And just recently, on February 20, Putin took his annual address to the nation as an opportunity to publicly confirm that Russia is building a new hypersonic missile that can be launched from ships or submarines and travel almost two miles per second. So think about that for a moment. And he was very transparent about the missile's ability to hit the United States and about his willingness to use this type of weapons if necessary. Okay, so just a couple of historical notes. The INF Treaty was a result of years of negotiations, and it was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in December of 1987. It prohibits both parties from owning, producing, or testing ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles of a certain range. It also bans nuclear and conventional weapons, but not air or sea-based missiles. The treaty includes the destruction of existing weapons and protocols for joint inspections. And so far, I mean, it really has worked. By 1991, several thousand weapons had been destroyed by both the United States and the Soviet Union. There have been tensions at different periods since its signing. For example, a 2007 Russian threat to withdraw because other countries were not banned by the treaty and an alleged violation by the Russians in 2008. Since then, bilateral and multilateral efforts and the pressure from non-proliferation experts to preserve the INF have just failed. And in February, the United States announced a full withdrawal in the next six months. So, Peter, it's amazing that after so many years of this treaty working, essentially, despite the Russian violations, Trump himself has determined kind of unilaterally to withdraw. And the UN has its hands tied. Congressional concerns about how stepping away eliminates the consequences of non-compliance for Russia have not swayed the administration. And the U.S. and Russia supposedly now have five months to try to save the deal. Nobody thinks that will happen. So the president just walks out of this in pure Trump style, turns around and heads off stage with no long-term game plan. That's risky. So there are a few big consequences of this decision. The biggest one is that Russia is now free to deploy intermediate-range land-based missiles to its heart content. And the rest of the world has now less and fewer limits on nuclear weapons production. 
But the most dangerous thing is that it puts an end to decades of a long tradition of nuclear cooperation between Washington and Moscow that has implications way beyond arms control in a world that's threatened by nuclear-capable countries like North Korea and Iran, leaving the INF dismantles a key part of the world's nonproliferation efforts, heats up the relations between the United States and Russia, and brings back the shadow of the Cold War into a volatile global environment. I mean, I think one of the big questions that everybody has to ask itself, it's, it's clear that the INF was full of holes and there were lots of accusations of it being insufficiently rigorous in terms of compliance. But it really created a framework for cooperation between Moscow and Washington that people could point to when you needed a framework for cooperation, for example, between Riyadh and Tehran or between Buenos Aires and Brasilia. And and people pointed to this. And now uh, when they see the superpowers walking away, how is that going to affect the others? So let's ask our guest. Jeff Lewis will help us dive deeper into the consequences of this short-sighted decision. Dr. Jeffrey Lewis is the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center of Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey, California. Before CNS, he was the director of nuclear strategy and nonproliferation initiatives at the New America Foundation and executive director of Managing the Atom project at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. At the Middlebury Institute, he teaches regular courses on arms control issues in Northeast Asia and Chinese nuclear policy. He's a regular columnist for foreign policy and has published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. His podcast, armscontrolwonk.com, is the leading blog and podcast on arms control and nonproliferation issues. Thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us again on Altamar. You are our first repeat guest in Altamar's history. Well, that's an honor. It's, it's great to talk to you a second time. Thanks very much for being with us. So I, I just want to begin really broad. Why is this INF treaty so important? Why is this a big deal? Well, when one looks at nuclear weapons, it's really easy to imagine that deterrence is always going to hold, right? And that's usually because we sort of imagine strategic weapons, weapons that take, you know, 20, 30 minutes to get to their targets. And so even though that's really not much time to end the world, there's at least a little bit of time in there for decision makers. So you don't necessarily get the worst possible decisions. INF forces, right, intermediate range nuclear forces, because they have such shorter ranges, they're sort of long enough that they could knock out, uh, say, a capital like Moscow. But they're so short that the flight time is very, very short, right? So what ends up happening is in a situation where you have a bunch of intermediate range nuclear forces, decision makers in a crisis are going to be living in terror that at any moment they could all be killed. And, and that's really escalatory. So in the 1980s, these things were seen as, as a really terrible idea. Uh, and that's why the United States and the Soviet Union negotiated to get rid of them. Jeffrey, right after Trump's announcement last October, you published a foreign policy piece entitled Trump's Punk Rock Nuclear Policy, in which you say that the only reason behind his decision was to give a middle finger to the world. So what triggered this improvised announcement with no visible rationale? I think it was to give a middle finger. You know, the reality is that Russia has been violating the treaty, or at the very least, the United States says Russia's been violating the treaty. And I frankly think the evidence for that's pretty good. So there is this kind of fundamental problem we have that countries are, well, that the Russians at least, are building these forces in violation of the treaty. A lot of us would have just preferred for the administration to try to address those concerns rather than pull out of the treaty and, and build our own. But 
That's just not really Trump's style. How influential was John Bolton for this outcome? It said that he's been not quite a friend of the treaty itself. John Bolton has been writing articles for years about how much he hates the INF treaty. And in fact, the article I wrote for Foreign Policy is a kind of updated version of an article I wrote after John Bolton wrote an op-ed, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or so about how the United States needed to get out of the INF treaty. Somebody like Bolton like Bolton is really opposed to negotiated agreements with other countries, right? He finds them to be an affront to American sovereignty. So, you know, I don't actually think he cares about INF forces. I just think he really hates treaties. Uh, one of my friends, Joe Serencioni, called him a, a serial killer for treaties. And I think that's probably pretty fair. I mean, let me just turn that around a second, because I just wonder beyond the middle finger and the pleasure of uh, dumping a treaty, you know, there's a question about whether both Trump and Putin are sort of enthusiastic about the new freedoms that they now have to build new nuclear weapons productions and have uh, missile base upgrades, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, t tell us a little bit more about what could have been beyond the political message. What, what is the interest that could have laid behind walking away from this treaty? Well, look, for the Russians, the INF Treaty was always very controversial. So what one of the things that happened in the 1970s is that the Soviets started deploying the first intermediate-range nuclear forces. And it was something that the, the Soviet general staff really wanted. Mikhail Gorbachev, when, when he came to power, you know, he was sort of assured that NATO would never be able to deploy its own intermediate-range nuclear forces, that they'd be too politically costly, and it would tear the NATO alliance apart. And so when NATO successfully did do that, the combination of the kind of shock that, that now there were these really threatening American missiles going into Europe, plus Gorbachev's, I, you know, I think, you know, far more cooperative-minded attitude led to a kind of discrediting uh, of the people who'd really pushed for these forces. Thing is, that was a long time ago, <laughs> right? And, and, and we don't have Gorby, we have Putin. And I think in the last few years, we've seen this kind of resurgence of kind of Soviet era kind of ideas about nuclear weapons and defense. And, and one of the things the Russians have been pushing for really, frankly, since the Bush administration has been to get out of the INF treaty. And, you know, they point to China as a reason, but actually I think it's less driven by specific threat scenarios and more just by a defense industry that really wants to have missiles of all ranges available to it. And you don't have a political leader anymore who's willing to constrain that. So I think that's what's fundamentally driving Russian interest. On the U.S. side, you know, we have a lot of these forces. It's just that we have them based on aircraft and ships. And so there's no real need to have ground-based versions of them, which is the only thing that the treaty ever, ever constrained. But I think there's a real aggravation that if the Russians can have them, then, then we should have them too. So I, I really don't think it's any more complicated than that. Can I just – I mean, are you at all insinuating that Donald Trump did a favor to the Russians by walking away from this? Well, I don't know that, you know, I don't, I don't know if they rented a bunch of rooms in his hotel in order to get him to do it. So I don't know if I'd call it a favor, but it's certainly a huge benefit to the Russians because the Russians were violating the treaty. And there are kind of two ways you can play a violation of the treaty, right? You can use it to build support within NATO for much stronger actions, which is, was one thing we could have done, right? Which would have made the Russians pay a cost for being in violation of the treaty, but the other thing you can do is just take your ball and go home, in which case all of the all of the Russian programs magically become legal, right? Because they're no longer constrained by the treaty. So, yeah, my guess is that Putin and the Russian general staff, they wanted out and and now they're out cost free with the U.S. taking all the blame. 
What is the fallout or the impact on hotspots all over the world of this pullout? Well, I think it depends. I mean, it varies by place. One really interesting thing is going to be watching how Russian and Chinese intermediate range nuclear force deployments interact with one another. You know, the the treaty was a really good deal for the Chinese because they were building a lot of these missiles and, and the Russians couldn't. You know, now as the Russians begin to deploy these systems, it'd be interesting to see how the Chinese react. So that's that's one thing. You know, I mean, I think the effect on Europe is is pretty important because we're getting back into this 1980s-like situation, particularly if the U.S. follows suit, where we have a tense relationship with Russia. Nuclear weapons are part of that tense relationship. And, and now we're going to have a bunch of systems in place that drastically reduce decision time, right? And, and if there's one thing we know about decision makers, it's that the less time they have, the worse decisions they make. Can I also push you on that one too? I mean, sure. there's, there is, for example, you know, between New Delhi and Islamabad and I mean, there are non-strategic, non-nuclear superpower nuclear problems all around the world. I mean, does Mm -hmm. removing something, a treaty like the INF, also send a message to other nuclear... I mean, another one could be like Riyadh and Tehran. Does it send a message in some way to others that the world is no longer constrained? It's an interesting thing. Saudi Arabia in the 1980s is one of the few states... In fact, it's the only state that I know of to purchase an intermediate-range missile. They purchased intermediate-range missiles from China. Now they have conventional warheads, not nuclear warheads, but you know those missiles still exist. And a couple of years ago, the Saudis paraded them. I'm always... Countries are going to do what they're going to do. And, and so I don't want to exaggerate the impact of having a treaty in terms of restraining other countries. But yeah, this is absolutely a step in the direction of no restraints at all. So, you know, we used to be in a position where we had the INF Treaty in the U.S. And, and the Russians were restraining themselves. And they could go to these other countries and say, look, these capabilities that you're seeking, like, these are really, these are dangerous. They're destabilizing. You know, they're, they're longer than battlefield weapons. So they can do these strategic things like take out decision makers in a capital but they do it from such a close range that you're really not going to have any warning. Like, you don't want to get into this game, right? We could make that argument. But now that we're kind of both building them willy-nilly, uh, you know, I don't really think that we have much ability to go out and try to, like, reduce the proliferation of these systems. So, you know, it's it's not a great time for arms control. And, and I think as a result, it's not a great time for stability. Speaking of that, having you here on, on our podcast again, I have to ask you about what happened at the Vietnam summit between the United States and North Korea. And I mean, obviously raises additional concerns about the U.S. running out of options to control the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But, you know, I should also tell listeners that just last year you published a a wonderfully controversial report that's titled the 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks on the United States, which you know, essentially was a uh, forward looking into the potential crystal ball of a disaster uh, because we didn't take the right actions on North Korea. So tell us what you think the repercussions are of the failed summit. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of bummed because we're like exactly on my timeline. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're at the point in the book in 2019 where negotiations break down. And then, you know, in my book over the course of 2018, the U.S. goes back to this pressure strategy. And, and then in early 2020, things get out of control. And that's kind of what kind of the timeline we're on. Look, I think the fundamental dynamic, you know, which I describe in the book, because I, I think it is the real problem, is we have incompatible expectations with the North Koreans. 
the North Koreans are not offering to give up their nuclear weapons. Like they just aren't. Whenever they are asked about it, they use this phrase denuclearization, which really means the U.S. getting its weapons away from the North Koreans, right? We in the United States, when we hear that denuclearization word, we hear they're going to disarm like Libya or Iraq, right? And so what I think we saw in Hanoi is that those two conceptions ran into one another. The North Koreans were saying, you know, they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons, but they might close some facilities, which would be a good news story. But in exchange for that, they wanted substantial relief from sanctions. And the U.S. view was, no, those sanctions stay on until you give up everything. And, you know, there's just that's not a it's not a situation where there are two differences that you can kind of nudge together and paper over. There's kind of a fundamental disconnect about whether this process allows North Korea to keep nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future. You know, the answer to that is either yes or no. And like, if this process goes forward, one side has to give. Right. And so the mumbling you hear today from the administration that this process is not over, that we're still talking, that another summit is not out of the question, you think that that's hogwash? Well, we could keep talking. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, because we do so much work with uh, satellite images and uh, you know other kinds of open source information, we see evidence that North Korea is continuing to build, right? They're continuing to make ICBMs. They're continuing to make nuclear weapons. And so it suits the North Koreans just fine to keep talking because they don't have – they can have their cake and eat it too at the moment. What's really interesting about this process to me though and the part that I think is fascinating is I think Trump will let this thing go on forever, right? It's – it's fine for him to keep having these summits, even if nothing happens. I'm not sure that the North Koreans are infinitely patient. You know, in his New Year's speech, Kim Jong-un said if sanctions weren't removed from the country, they were going to find a new way to protect their sovereignty. Of course, he didn't say what that was. You've started to see in the press over the past few weeks, maybe some hints of what might come next. So starting in mid-February, North Korea began reassembling a space launch site that they had kind of partially disassembled as a kind of good faith gesture as part of negotiations. You know, we're seeing vehicle activity at various sites associated with making ICBMs and space launchers. So, you know, I don't think we're immediately going to go back to crisis mode, but I do think that we're kind of heading towards something coming. And and I think most of us are thinking it might be a North Korean space launch. So that's going to be a kind of interesting test. If that's how North Korea's patience runs out, if they launch a satellite into space, Is Trump going to say like, oh, that's okay, it's just a rocket? Or is he going to revert to the traditional American position, which says, well, that's a missile test. And and then, you know, we're back to 2017. And what does your book say is going to happen next? Well, so in the book, Bolton gets the keys to the car. And what Bolton does in the book is uh, he resurrects this very real 1980s Reagan era program that the Reagan administration conducted against the Soviet Union. And that was using bombers to probe Soviet air defenses in order to show that we did have the capacity to conduct an attack if we if we needed to. What happened in real life is that this drove the Soviets crazy and it got them on edge. And over the course of 1983, they became really jumpy. Um, and at one point, they shot down a Korean airliner, uh, which you know triggered a tremendous crisis. And it's probably one of the most dangerous years in the Cold War. Same thing happens in my book where Bolton resumes these or or initiates these kinds of bomber probes, the North Koreans get jumpy, they shoot down a Korean airliner, and then we're off to the races. Uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but, you know, 
the title of the book does kind of tell you how it goes. So Jeffrey, I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but the general feeling is that, you know, with measures like this, is that the fate of the world is in the hands of a few arrogant and not particularly forward-thinking leaders. And while it wouldn't be the first time, this is um, in many sense a repetition of other times in history, there's more at stake now. Is there anything concrete positive being taken, any step that's being taken that can ease some of these global fears and concerns in the international community and um, any type of institution? I mean, I think leaders need to make better decisions. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> so one of my frustrations is uh, not to introduce a third subject, but we often have this discussion about how the president of the United States has unilateral and unconstrained authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. You know, he doesn't, doesn't require a second vote. And people are always saying, like, well, there should be a safeguard, right? And, well, the safeguard was the election, right? That's the safeguard. And so, I mean, I just think the situation we're in is if countries make better choices than they're making now, then the world's going to get better, right? And so at least on North Korea, I think that's the U.S. understanding that disarmament's not a likely outcome and, and we have to build a better relationship on, on some other basis, I think on INF and, and frankly, the whole range of U.S.-Russia nuclear issues, it's finding a way to get back to the table and negotiating arms control agreements that reduce risk. You know, and, and I, you know, it's, I think it's just generally true across the world. I mean, we do have cooperative strategies to create win-win solutions for our security. It's just that it takes a, a little bit of effort and a little bit of courage. So a little space for optimism. Jeffrey Lewis, thank you for joining us on Altamar. My pleasure. Mooney, the one line that really stuck with me is that it's a bad time for arms control and it's a bad time for stability. I have to say that it, this is, you know, where Jeffrey Lewis's book comes true. Um, you know, is the Korea effort going to unravel because of our completely different understandings of what the word denuclearization means? And that we don't have, certainly don't have leaders that seem to be creative enough to actually find other ways to engage. Well, we've talked about these leaders on this podcast many times about how this the world is kind of running wild with strong men with their hands on nuclear weapons and basically running unchecked. And I do think that is a little bit apocalyptic and, and concerning. And hopefully the sensible voices and the voters will prevail in, in countering that effect. From your lips to God's ears. And with that, see you next time on Altamar. <laughs>